Hello, this is Rusty Reno uh, at the First Things Editor's Desk podcast. And I have with me Professor Stanley Payne from the University of Wisconsin to talk about his review of Paul Gottfried's book, Anti-Fascism, The Course of a Crusade. Welcome, Professor Payne, to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, before we get going, I have to make my year-end plug to listeners to log on to firstthings.com and make a year-end donation to support our mission, support this podcast and, of course, our wonderful magazine, First Things, and the website that has fresh material every day. So please donate to firstthings.com before 2021 winds to its end. Okay, now that we've got the fundraising plug out of the way, we can jump into uh, into this question of anti-fascism. I suppose the place to start is, what is fascism? Yeah, this is a, a very complicated place to start because fascism is simply used as an all-purpose pejorative. So that when people talk about fascism, it often has very little to do with historical fascism at all. Anti-fascism began uh, when there was originally an organized fascism, that is, in Italy, about 1921-1922, with the emergence of the Italian fascist movement. And it was first raised into an ideology by the Communist International, starting about 1923, because it was the propagandists of the International who understood first that they could really use fascism as a kind of symbol with which to denounce their political adversaries and employ the terms a special kind of pejorative that would be used to smear a variety of people who were not fascists at all. And this led during the course of the 1920s to the Comintern's development of its uh, rhetorical propaganda policy of hyphenate fascism, including calling all its enemies fascists. Uh, with a hyphen to indicate what kind of fascists they were, whether they were conservatives, conservative fascists, liberals, liberal fascists, uh, anti-communist socialists, in that case social fascists, and so on down the line. So this was developed as a kind of a general propaganda ploy in the 1920s, particularly by the Communist International. And uh, was only used that way by people more or less in that vein of politics during the 20s and 30s in the fascist epoch when there was a real fascism to be opposed to. Now, as I, as I look at fascism, it, I see it as a form of modernism. As you point out, it, it exalts a kind of vitalism, willpower. Um, you know, it's a... Uh, uh, Mussolini was, he was committed to the mobilization of uh, the Italian people. So there's all this talk um, of uh, energy and vitality and mobilization. And I, I suppose our listeners could be forgiven, and correct me if I'm right in this way, that a lot of people in the, in the interwar years thought that 19th century liberal notions of parliamentary democracy and uh, freedoms of an economic liberalism were just passe, and that the future was either going to be this 
nationalist total mobilization or it was going to be the, the communist total mobilization. Is that fair that there was a widespread, widespread sense that you had to choose between these two because the, the liberal uh, project was kind of exhausted? Uh, this was the situation that obtained by, say, the 1930s, particularly during the Depression crisis. It proceeded in three different waves. Uh, one might conclude, for example, the cultural phase, which developed first in the 1890s, the reaction against liberalism and liberal rationalism and materialism, and then the World War I crisis, the difficulty of putting Europe back together again after 1918, which was done partially but never completely, and then the, the, the major crisis of the Great Depression, which became a political crisis in a good many European and also extra-European countries as well during that time. Uh, but uh, fascism uh, seen simply as one of the 20th century radicalisms, really one of the, the, the basic revolutionary movements of the World War I era, the era of world wars, along with communism, anarchism, and even to some extent a kind of non-communist revolutionary socialism, so fascism. Uh, the problem has been, of course, that anti-fascists always want to insist, since we tend to be particularly more uh, leftist in inclination, that fascism is radical but not revolutionary, that fascism <clears throat> was essentially reactionary and therefore was not one of the revolutionary movements. But uh, this was mistaken. This was simply a reductionist reading of of revolution, meaning that revolution only meant a certain kind of egalitarian economic revolution. Yeah, I my guess is that Mussolini would go down in Italian history as one of the great modernizing, unifying figures of Italian history. Had it not been for the rise of Adolf Hitler, and had not had it not been his for his fateful decision to ally himself with Hitler, is that fair? Because he would be seen as a, he would be seen in history as a as a certain kind of man of the left, wouldn't he? Well, I don't know if they would be seen exactly as a man of the left, but you're quite right that Mussolini would have uh, quite a different reputation if he did manage to avoid getting involved in World War II. Uh, a, a basic problem here is that although fascism was opposed by many people even during the 1920s, uh, fascism itself didn't really disturb that many people during the 1920s either. When the main avatar and representative of fascism was Italy, the relatively modern form of Italian fascism, it was accepted in international relations and in international political discourse. The Soviet Union recognized the Mussolini government right away in 1923, uh, and so did everybody else. Mussolini was part of the regular international system which was still a quasi-liberal international system for most of Europe in, in the 1920s. Uh, the real problem here is that when people are talking about fascism in terms of historical discourse and uh, general political discussion, particularly in later times and in the 21st century, they're not really talking about historical fascism. They're not talking about Mussolini. They're not talking about the Italians. They're talking about Hitler National Socialism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. I, you point out that uh, there's a quasi-religious function for fascism after the war. It becomes the 
it becomes the term for absolute evil. <laughs> and so if we want to sacralize our, our politics, one of the easiest ways to do it is to characterize it as anti-fascist. I mean, who right. Could, it becomes a kind of myth, a myth. It takes on a mythic significance. In terms of the symbolic rhetoric, because the name for Hitlerism is National Socialism. That sounds very left-wing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so no one wants to talk about National Socialism. The ism, therefore, Nazism, uh, being too much of a, a slang term, becomes fascism. And th this has several advantages. One is that, first of all, fascism itself doesn't mean anything. Uh, fascism has uh, no specific cognitive reference. It refers to a term drawn from ancient Roman history. And then the very sound of the word fascism is unique and rather sinister with those <laughs> sibilants. And therefore, it serves a kind of aesthetic symbolic reference. And in talking about Nazism and Hitlerism, rather than saying national socialism, which as a political construction and concept presents a special problem in itself, it's easier just to talk about fascism. But we have to remember that fascism in popular discourse nowadays doesn't really mean fascism. It means Hitlerism and National Socialism in German. One of the books I read recently that I found very helpful was Michael Seidman's book, Transatlantic Anti-Fascism. And in that book, he distinguishes between revolutionary and counter-revolutionary anti-fascism which is a very striking dichotomy. By revolutionary, he means that, that binary, either communism or fascism. And so the communist says, uh, we have to have a communist revolution in order to combat the fascist revolution. And the counter-revolutionary side, which I took me a long time reading the book to really get my mind around, is really the sort of de Gaulle, Churchillian, Rooseveltian insistence that the the achievements of 19th century liberalism could be sustained in modified form through the 20th century. Um, and that, that was, that was a, I found that to be a very helpful distinction. So the anti-fascism was anti-revolutionary during the, during the leaders of, uh, of the allied cause were anti-fascists in an anti-revolutionary way in, during the war. Um, but you observe, and Paul Gottfried observes, and you second his observation, that anti-fascism in the post-war era inevitably gets linked up with revolutionary sentiments. I mean, you would think that, so the counter-revolutionary, let's call it liberal anti-fascism, uh, it, it sort of after the victory of the war wanes. And I think of uh, the Horkheimer Adorno-inspired book, The Authoritarian Personality, that really redeploys anti-fascism in the service of, in that case, a, a cultural revolution, a revolution in sexual mores and social relations. That's uh, generally correct. Uh, anti-fascism was understood during World War II in the West, generally, as a non-revolutionary proposition and then was adopted more and more as a political cause by the left after World War II as a kind of partisan device, uh, not merely with regard to opposition to neo-fascism, 
but simply as a rhetorical and propaganda tactic to smear all kinds of political opponents as potential neo-fascists. And this was what made anti-fascism uh, in the later 20th century much more of a revolutionary kind of anti-fascism because it would be employed really not simply to be anti-fascist. In fact, there wasn't much to be done to be anti-fascist about in the later 20th century. There wasn't any fascism going. Anti-fascism therefore became a radical device and a kind of an analog to, to revolutionary anti-fascism to uh, advance leftist politics. And that was particularly the case from the 1960s on, during the time of the development of contemporary radical progressivism, a process now that's been in, in uh, process for more than half a century. You point out that the German, post-war German government pioneered a, system, a, a kind of, I would call it a paranoid anti-fascism. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, characterized, maybe it's a post-traumatic stress disorder of German society. They're constantly seeing fascists under every stone, even though, the, as you point out, the violence and the radicalism is almost universally on the left. And really, in the West, I think, probably broadly, um, in the post-war era, that uh, radicalism and revolutionary violence, uh, political violence, has been a left-wing phenomenon and very rarely a right-wing phenomenon. Is that fair? Uh, to a large extent, that is correct. Uh, a, a political violence uh, was uh, a, a right-wing phenomenon, that is, a, a, more generally, a non-leftist phenomenon, particularly during the interwar period, going through World War II. That is, it was a, a uh, characteristic of the fascist era, roughly from uh, 1919, if not 1914, to 1945, and then uh, in the developed world has been, again, a, a leftist characteristic uh, almost exclusively from 1945 on. In the case of Germany, first the Federal Republic and now unified Germany, this developed really from the 1960s, uh, more or less step-by-step step with radical progressivism that is, it was not a function of the Germans themselves so much in the immediate post-war era. They were coming out of Nazism, and they had ambivalent attitudes toward Nazism uh, at, at first. This was something imposed by the occupying powers. But then with the processes of cultural and political change by the 1960s, was very much adopted in a very vigorous and aggressive form by the West German government, and has been maintained all down to the present time. So that Germany is a country which uh, uh, really cannot affirm itself as a nation or have nationalist goals of any particular kind for fear of uh, identifying these once more with fascism, neo-fascism, or having other people do so. So Germany lives in a very strange kind of situation, even compared with other uh, European countries. I would think uh, Conrad Audenauer, if he were to be, to reappear in Germany today, would be considered an, a fascist <laughs> because it's a moving target, as you point out, that as the progressive ratchet clicks, it's clicks of turn turning. The, those who hold views that were mainstream 20 years ago are denounced as reactionary fascists. Right. 
And the employment of the rhetoric, of course, will vary from sector to sector and who's doing it. Not everyone will, will do it the same way. Uh, and uh, the anti-fascist template may become recessive in particular many periods. For example, nowadays, the, the left in the United States does not talk about anti-fascism since uh, Donald Trump is ceased to be president. Uh, the ism that is always uh, used as a rallying point is racism and anti-racism. Uh, Paul Gottfried wrote the book about anti-fascism uh, with reference to the fact that anti-fascism is an underlying template for radical progressive ideology during the past half century, uh, which is sometimes more prominent and sometimes more recessive. Uh, for the moment, in fact, rather more recessive than prominent, but a kind of underlying template uh, that uh, really undergirds variety of emphases in radical progressive ideology. So how does a template work? Is it, is it, you have to go with us, otherwise Hitler? I mean, I, I'm just kind of, I agree with, with uh, him on this point. I do think that in my own research into, um, into the post-war history, uh, very superficial uh, research, but my own reading in this area, it does seem as though anti-fascism becomes the, the leitmotif, even if it's not, as you say, it's recessive and not dominant. Um, there's a way in which Auschwitz is the sort of um, the great, I mean, there's Adorno saying, you know, no poetry can be written after Auschwitz. So that's the great rain shadow um, throughout the decades. And so there's always uh, the return of Hitler as the great bugbear um, that you can always use as a Trump in political debate. Right. And this is particularly the case whenever there is any major political challenge or major political conflict. Uh, it's the Trump card, so to speak. Uh, and it will not be paid, played in more normal political times. They will simply emphasize the more immediately operative aspects of radical progressive ideology. And that will in involve uh, present time, of course, racism above all else, sometimes genderism uh, or, or other issues like that. Uh, simply a recessive leitmotif. Uh, only when there is a, a really major challenge is it a question of fascism or anti-fascism, uh, revolution or the abyss. Uh, but that's for extreme situations. The one of the features of our time is that a challenge to the political status quo. I mean, I look at populism as a as a political challenge to the dominant consensus. You know, voters don't like the current arrangements and they want changes. And that the anti-fascist template is to translate political challenges into extra political challenges. So in other words, the people who disagree are not disagreeing about policies or about the overall direction of the country. Instead, they are they are they represent a kind of threat to civilization. <laughs> and I really thought that was uh, I was kind of shocked during the Trump four years at how many journalists and pundits used that template. It was really so you don't have to actually answer the political challenge or the political you don't have to debate people on the merits you can denounce them as fascists that's, that's right 
Uh, it's it particularly in a situation where the opposition to the left is mounting a major challenge that then it is important to go for the nuclear option. And the nuclear option in terms of political debate is always to denounce the uh, opponent as fascist or fascism. I mean, the, the editorial page of the Financial Times, hardly a voice of radicalism, fell into this, these tropes in 2016. Uh, and then again with with Brexit, it seems it seems as though it's not just the cutting edge of radicalism, but rather people who I would often think of as part of the mainstream center left are very tempted to use this this rhetoric. Oh, oh yes, the the uh, trope can be employed by all kinds of people, even relatively moderate people. You have someone like Madeleine Albright, who wrote a book about fascism, uh, which she seems to be relatively ignorant in general, uh, but applying the, the, the term very broadly. Although uh, in, in that particular book, it's true that Albright was careful not to call Donald Trump specifically individually a fascist. We're talking about <laughs> more, more general political tendencies. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, th th this is something uh, which uh, has become so well established, in fact, as, as, as a kind of uh, general background template that it will come out in the mouths of all kinds of people and even relatively moderate, relatively central pe centrist people sometimes. You end your review evoking the kind of the frenzied character of our current moment, uh, which is very paradoxical, it seems to me. On the one hand, very little changes. On the other hand, we are subject to the most extreme rhetoric and, and really extreme notions like transgenderism that were hardly anybody even gave any thought to as shortly ago as six years ago. So that on the one hand, everything seems to be moving just quickly and we seem to be in the midst of this extraordinary revolution. On the other hand, the, the same people are, Nancy Pelosi's running things, Joe Biden is the president. I mean, these are, these are establishment figures that have been around for decades. So what do you make of that odd paradox of seeming changeless continuity combined with the most extreme ideas and notions and, and rhetoric, and also a pervasive atmosphere of intimidation and, and uh, soft coercion. Well, it really goes back uh, to the time that uh, uh, first analogous situations developed, I'd say during the 1930s, back to the time of, of the popular front uh, and the way politics have developed in quite a number of countries since that time more in the so-called third world on occasion uh, than in the developed West. But the whole idea is whether you do revolution uh, by insurrection or revolution by evolution. If you do revolution by evolution, uh, then you simply maintain the uh, established structures as formal devices and change the, the uh, policies and the content within those established structures. So it is really the, the old strategy of revolution by evolution. And curiously, of course, that was the unique tactical change 
introduced by Mussolini himself in 1921. <laughs> uh, he was a revolutionary who had been on the extreme left and was one of the leaders of Red Week of the attempted socialist insurrection. It was hoped in 1914 on the eve of World War I. But that had fallen flat. And he saw after the war that a revolutionary insurrection would never work in Western Europe. You had to do revolution by evolution uh, using the established system and hollowing it out from the inside out. That was the fascist tactic, and that's the way the fascist regime was set up in Italy in the 1920s. Hitler realized after making a big mistake in 1923 that Mussolini had it right. Uh, paradoxically, this is the fascist tactic uh, of revolution by evolution is the one that was adopted finally by the communists for a brief time in 1935, uh, and something that they have uh, reverted to uh, from particularly the late 20th century on down to the present time. But it is the anti-fascists who really rely in most countries on the fascist tactic of basic political change. They don't recognize that because, first of all, they're ignorant of comparative political history. And then, of course, the reality of what's going on is never clearly analyzed by a good many uh, political pundits and commentators anyway. Well, I think as we careen forward in our crazy political moment, we can rest assured that although we are in a recessive moment of anti-fascism, it's almost certain to return in force uh, in, the, in the coming years. So I'd like to thank you for your, your observations and uh, this discussion. And thank you especially for this beautiful review. And obviously to Paul Godfrey for, for writing uh, such a timely book. So thank you for your time, Professor. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs>